Welcome to our midweek Bible study. We're back in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 8, verses 10 to 17. Chapter 8, verses 10 to 17. I titled the, the message today, Don't Worry, Fear God, Be Happy. Don't Worry, Fear God, Be Happy. And this text is really a product of Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, looking at life through the lens that says, you know what, sometimes justice isn't carried out under the heavens. And not even the, the king has the ultimate power in all this. It's, it's ultimately God who holds everything in the balance. And he points us to what will get us through life. When there's injustice, when there's trials, when there's tribulations, what will get us through life? Well, he boils it down to one thing. He basically says the fear of the Lord. Over in Psalm 111, verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. Or Psalm 19, verse 9, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Or Psalm 2, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoicing and rejoice with trembling. Or Proverbs 23:17 says let not your heart envy sinners but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. See it's interesting how frequently we hear and read today that people are simply not enjoying life. They don't enjoy their marriage, they don't enjoy their family, they don't enjoy their work. Something's wrong in the human heart. And the problems we face today with this pandemic and everything, you're, you might be asking, well, how can I enjoy anything today with all the chaos going on in all the world? How can we live today in the light of all our circumstances with the joy of the Lord? Because the Bible says the joy of the Lord is what? Is our strength. We need to be reminded of that. It's interesting that through the whole book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon points out one general message, one fundamental law. It's simply to fear God, to fear God. But how do we do that? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. And so I want you to follow along as I read the text for us out of Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 10 to 17. Solomon writes, Then I saw the wicked buried, they used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not ex executed speedily. The heart 
of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before the Lord. Verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy, for the man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep. But I saw all the work of God. That man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you, Lord, that your wisdom is beyond our wisdom, that we don't have all the answers, that we're called to trust in you each and every day to lead us and to guide us and to equip us to live this life that you've called us to here on this earth. And Lord, when we look around, we see many injustices going on in our world today, in our society, in the world of politics, in the world of finance. And it almost seems like the wicked are, are benefiting. And Lord, Solomon calls us back to the fundamental understanding that our joy doesn't come from seeing the wicked punished or judged. Our joy comes from the fear of God. And so, Lord, we pray tonight, if there's any listening to this message, that you would open their hearts to the gospel of Christ, that you would call them to be your child, that you would show them that there's forgiveness and peace and joy in Christ. They would turn from their sin to the Savior. We ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. It's interesting how Solomon, through this whole book, he focuses on that one thing, to fear God. But you ask yourself, well, how do you do that? What does that mean? Well, there's three things I want to share with you tonight, how we can show that we fear God, what will help us in our fear of God. And the first point here in your outline, hopefully you've downloaded the outline from the app or you see it there, and you have it before you. The first point is remember your accountability is to God. Remember your accountability is to God. He points that out in the first three verses of our text, 10 to 13. Um, our fear of the Lord really controls everything that we say, we think, or we do. Because the first way I can live with the joy of the Lord in my heart is to remember my accountability before God. Uh, real joy is not moving away from God, as the world would tell you. Put God on the shelf. God's not interested in you. 
Don't worry about what God's word says. That, you're not going to find joy in that situation. You're not going to find joy in, in thinking that, well, I'm going to do what I want to do. No, you have to realize that you're accountable. You're going to be held accountable to God. And that's where real joy, real peace that God gives us is put into our hearts. And we don't ever recognize that. We don't ever see that until we recognize the fact that God holds us accountable. And there's four things here that I want to point out under this point. Remember your accountability to God. First of all, in verse 10, he points out the problem of how the wicked are treated in life. Look at what he says here. He says, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place, that's Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. When I read this verse, I remember reading an illustration of the lawman Elliot Ness. And he brought, his claim to fame basically was he brought Al Capone to justice. But Elliot Ness never enjoyed any kind of financial blessing as a result of his career. Even as his crime-fighting career continued, he, he, after this remarkable accomplishment, he and his family basically lived meagerly, <laughs> check to check, in very common means. And I thought how humbling it must have been for this investigator, this, this lawman who arrested Al Capone and all his sorts, these people who were constantly breaking the law, and yet they were living high on the hog. They had all this money and money to pay lawyers and everything. And how humbling it must have been for Elliot Ness to have to go home to his meager means every day, doing the right thing, being a righteous man, a lawman, and yet arresting people who are doing all the wrong things, and yet they're blessed beyond his wildest imagination. The one thing about Elliot Ness you may not realize is he actually died before his one big chance at commercial gain in his life. He wrote a book, and the publication of his book, The Untouchables, he died before that was even published. So he, he never really saw the fruit of all that. And you think of King Solomon and his dealings with foreign leaders, and, and he must have seen many cases of wicked kings and powerful men who prolonged their reign over their kingdoms. And he says here basically, I looked at all this under the sun, and he says it's hard to see the value of living righteously when wicked men are rewarded with prosperity. Don't you ever feel that way? You look around and you say, why are these people who are doing everything wrong, according to God's word, why are they prospering? And so he says here, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place. That's Jerusalem, like I said. And it says they were praised, depending on what translation you have, your translation may say they are soon forgotten instead of praised. And you say, wow, what's going on there? Well, there was obviously an error when they translated this word in some of the, the uh, transcripts. And so some of the English translations have the word praised. They were praised in the city where they had done such things. In other words, say, and they were soon forgotten in the city where they did thus. And so you say, well, which words, that's a big, big difference, praised versus forgotten. Well, I'm going to go with praised, and I'll tell you why, because it fits the context. In other words, if bad people did bad things and people just forgot about them, you would say, yeah, that's right. Just forget about those lowlifes. 
But here, what Solomon's point is, is they weren't forgetting about them. They were praising them for their wicked deeds. And he says, that's what's vanity. So it fits the context to go with the word praised. And so he says here that this judgment on the wicked, um, it, 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 it seemed like it wasn't happening. And uh, some people appear in the world today to just live in high on the hog. They're doing everything evil and wicked in this world, and yet they're, they're the ones that get the raises. They're the ones that win the lottery. They're the ones that make more money than anybody else. And you wonder, boy, where is the righteousness in this? You know, we have people today that live a total, complete life of debauchery, all kinds of things. And then when they die, our society almost makes a god out of them. They worship them. And it's, it's kind of a sad, a sad thing. And, and in our society today, where they parade constantly before us all these kinds of people, the Hollywood elite and everything. You look at all their fancy cars and their beautiful houses and their, their bank accounts and everything, and you go, wow, they must just have it made. And there's, there's something going on there that's not right. They look so happy. And yet, so many of them are so distraught. They're so miserable. And yet, they have anything they want. I, when we went last year back to uh, Nashville, Tennessee, we stopped by Memphis and we saw Elvis Presley's mansion and learned a lot about that man. And here was a man who was very gifted. He was very talented. He was famous. He was rich. And yet, in the end, his life ended in tragedy, tragic death, miserable, and yet he could have anything he wanted. Many people like that end their lives in misery because their values are placed on the wrong things. They're climbing the ladder thinking that somehow that's going to make them happy. It doesn't work that way. And so the issue here is not the, the, the judgment of the wicked, for that is not vanity. Rather, it's the praise of the wicked. It's people looking at the wicked people and saying, oh, look at them, how successful they are. They must be so happy. People who should be condemned for what they have done are instead praised. That's a serious issue of justice, of injustice, I should say. But we can still experience joy even when we see all that going around us. If you just focus on that, you'll be miserable. But you can still experience and joy by remembering that we're not accountable to them. We're accounted, accountable to who? We're accountable to God. We're accountable before God. And you know what? Things are not always what they appear in the lives of these people. And so Solomon concludes, it's vanity, it's meaningless, so we see here the problem of how the wicked are treated in life. We look at it and we say, boy, that just doesn't look right. It doesn't seem fair. We even in our own political world, we see all these things that have gone on in these last several years. I don't think there's one person in jail that carried out some of these things. And it's unfortunate. And we say, where's the justice in that? Well, God will be just in his dealings. Be assured of that. So we can remember our accountability is to God, secondly, by 
there's this presumption that you can sin without being judged. This is what happens. Not only do people look at the wicked getting away with all this stuff, how they're treated in life, but there's a presumption that, well, they're getting away with it. Why can't I do it? And there's the idea that you can sin before God and, and there's no judgment coming. People say this all the time. Well, if God, you know, was so great and so powerful, why wouldn't he judge all these people for doing these things? Well, verse 11, look at what it says. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. Boy, can you imagine if Solomon lived today in our justice system? How long does it take for somebody to go to trial and to actually be tried and, and if they committed a horrible crime and had the death penalty? When are they actually executed? Years, years at major cost to the state. Now, I'm all for making sure you got the right guy and the justice is carried out, but I think they could do it a little more swiftly. And that's what Solomon is saying here. And the second part of that verse says, the heart of children of man is fully set to do evil. See, it's a very true statement that the delays in judging evil convince us to do more evil. The Bible teaches that. When you delay justice, people think, well, justice isn't coming, so why can't I just do whatever I want? The longer it even is true in the home when you think about it, the longer a parent delays the discipline in the home with their children, what happens? The more you put that off, the more you put the discipline off, the more trouble you will have down the road with that child. That's just a matter of fact. If you're a parent and your child acts up, you need to get on that right away and discipline them and let them know that this behavior will not be tolerated. If you don't do that, What's the child going to think? Oh, yeah, mom and dad said I shouldn't do this, but I did it. Nothing happened, so I'm going to do it again. And it becomes a vicious circle, and pretty soon they're teenagers, and they're just causing havoc in your home. Why does that happen? Because our hearts are set toward evil. They're desperately wicked. We don't have a default to good. If we just left on our own, we wouldn't do good things. We would do evil things. It's only when God intervenes and transforms our heart that we're able to do the good works that he's prepared beforehand for us to do. If we were left to ourselves, we would do evil continually, the Bible says. And so what happens because of that, because there's a presumption that, well, you know, the evil aren't being judged, so I can go out and, and do this kind of stuff too. Nothing's going to happen. There's several presumptions that people often make. And one of them is God is indifferent. In other words, if God were so concerned, why would he let all this go on? Why wouldn't he just crack down and say, nope, no more? Well, one day he will. But they're asking that question now. They, they think God is indifferent. He's detached from us somehow. Secondly, they think that God is helpless to do anything. There's some people that look around and say, wow, if God was so powerful, uh, he could stop all this. He could stop this coronavirus, this COVID-19 pandemic tomorrow. So if your God is so powerful, why doesn't he do it? And so they, they have the view that God is somehow limited in his power. That's not a biblical view, but that's what they conclude. And then thirdly, not only do they think God is indifferent and God is helpless to do anything, but they, they believe that God shows favoritism. You know, he judges some, but not the others. Um, and we can, we can conclude those things logically if we look at it 
from a purely secular view. But that's not what the Bible says about God. And so Solomon ends, he says, this is all vanity because none of those things are true, but it's, it's just vanity, it's meaningless. And so he, he points out, first of all, our accountability before God there's a problem with the wicked, how they're treated in life. There's a presumption that you can go on without being judged. But then in verse 12, he points out the position of the believer or the follower of God or Christ. He says in verse 12, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. Do you ever wonder about that? Some people, they just, they have a rap, rap sheet a mile long. And they still get out of prison. And these are dangerous people. Even today, our country is freeing criminals from prisons due to this virus. And guess what law enforcement is saying? Law enforcement is saying, boy, there's a, there's a spike up in crime because you're letting people out of their punishment prematurely. And not only that, but I've watched uh, the show uh, Live PD, and now they're not even, if it's not a seriously violent crime, they don't even arrest them. They basically give them a warrant and they'll come back and arrest them later because they, they don't want to put them back in jail. So these people are free to go out and do whatever they want. And so this is what this verse is saying. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his life isn't over, it seems like it's prolonged almost. Then he says this, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. What is that? That's the position of the person who follows God, who's fearful of God, because they fear before him. See, our position as followers of Christ, no matter what's going on, no matter who's getting away with whatever, we have to fall back on the idea that what this verse says is, I know that it will be well with those who fear God. That should be our motivation. No matter what the sinner does, God has promised to us it will be well with us. In Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That's a promise from God. Yeah, it might not look like it's working for good right now, but that's a promise from God. And in the end, we will see the good in it. Even if the, the wicked get away with all the things they're doing, let's not forget what God has promised to us as his followers. God has said it will always be better for those who truly fear him. Maybe that won't be better till the other side of glory. I don't know. But see, a lot of times we, we look at people who are getting away with things and the wicked and their prosperity and all that, and, and we make this sad mistake. We think somehow it would, we would be better off if we were in their position. Boy, if we just had their job or if we just had their money or if we just had their possessions. Look at how they're enjoying life. And, and we compare ourselves. And, and we look at, you know, we're not satisfied with where we're at. We want to get from point A to point B. That happens in our careers. That happens in our marriages, our family, whatever. You know, it always, it even happens in ministry. Pastors come to a church and they pastor and then they, they, they wander away and they go to another church. Well, why does that happen? Because they, they always think the grass is greener on the other side. They think, boy, that looks like a better opportunity. Now, there are some times when God moves a man of, of, of God on to another ministry. That's, that's God's 
God's doing. But there are people, though, that are looking to climb the ladder. And I had a pastor one time said, yeah, the grass is always greener on the other side. And you know why? Because <laughs> there's a lot of something over there. <laughs> a lot of fertilizer, to put it blunt. And so you have to be careful. But we think we're always going to be better off if we achieve something else or get something else or, or have what somebody else has. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be what? Content. Content in whatever circumstances I am. If there's nothing you hear tonight more than this is learn how to be content. Content with your possessions. Content with your position in life. Now, I'm not saying be lazy. I'm not saying be complacent. I'm saying be content. There's nothing wrong with working hard and excelling at what you do. God calls us to do that. But we also should have a idea of contentment that goes along with that. We have to remember that God said, for those who fear the Lord, it is well. I'm thinking of that hymn, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, what? It is well. It is well with my soul. You know, that's an incredible hymn. And the person that wrote that, Horatio Spafford, he lived back in the 1800s. He died in 1888. I mean, can you imagine, just for a second, having everything just going excellent in your life? You have a wonderful marriage. You have five beautiful children. You have a booming career. I mean, do you think that you'd be able to say, oh, it is well with my soul? Sure you would. But now imagine all that is taken away. It's just you and your, your, your grief-stricken spouse nursing your broken hearts. Would it be easy then to say to God, it is well with my soul? See, this is a scenario like Job, really, Horatio Spafford put all his trust in God during his life's prosperity, when everything was going right. But he also did it during his calamities. Just to tell you a little story about Horatio Spafford, you've probably heard this, but he was a devout Christian. And he immersed himself in the scriptures daily. And many years of his life were joyous years. He definitely had the joy of the Lord. He was a prominent Chicago lawyer, and his business was just thriving. He had to turn people down. He was so busy. He owned several properties throughout the city, lucrative properties. He and his beautiful wife had four beautiful daughters, and they finally had a son. And life was more than good. It was blessed, he would say. But we have to remember, faith, no matter how great, does not insulate us from adversity. Faith, no matter how great, does not insulate us from adversity. It doesn't spare us from the hard things of life. Well, that was true in the life of Horatio Spafford. He hit the pinnacle of his profession and financial success. Things began to change. It began changing 
with the tragic loss of their son. Not long after, the Chicago, the Great Chicago Fire destroyed nearly every real estate investment Horatio owned. He lost everything. Just a few years later, working hard, he kind of regained some footing. And in 1873, he decided, you know what? I'm going to treat my wife and our daughters. We've had a tough couple years. I'm going to treat them to a much-needed escape from all the turmoil. We're going to go to Europe. And he sent his wife and daughters ahead on the boat with plans to join them after he finished up some business in Chicago. And just a few days later, after they left the dock, he received a dreadful telegram from his wife. And the telegram read, saved alone. It bore the excruciating news that the family's ship had wrecked and all four of their daughters perished. Well, in 1873, Horatio was on his way to meet his grief-stricken, heartbroken wife. And the story says that passing over the same sea that had just claimed the four lives of his daughters, it was there that he put his pen to paper to write that timeless hymn that we sing, It Is Well With My Soul. The second verse of that hymn says, Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. See, the Bible teaches us, beloved, that those who fear God know when they lay their head on that pillow at night, it is well with our soul. By the way, Spafford, Horatio Spafford died of malaria. He died in Jerusalem, October 16, 1888, and he was buried there in the American colony in Jerusalem. And while the author of this beautiful hymn, It Is Well, has passed on, we can still have this hymn to encourage us and inspire us in our walk here on this earth. Because you know what? We need that kind of inspiration. It's tough to live as a believer in this world today. There are many distractions that seek to disrail our faith. It's hard to stand alone in a secular world. I really have a heart for young people today, especially young people who are committed to the cause of Christ because they really have to stand on their own because there is so much peer pressure, so much pushing to do what everybody else is doing. And when you find a young person who's willing to stand their ground, though nobody else stand there with them, they stand alone, they're willing to do it, what a wonderful thing that is. And you know what that, that tells us is they have character. See, today the problem with our society is most people, they're not worried about character, they're worried about their reputation. What's the difference, you say? Well, reputation is, is what people think we are. And we can manipulate however we act in front of people to make them think whatever we want them to think. But it's not what God thinks and what God knows we are. See, character is what we are when the lights are out. <laughs> character is what we are in the dark when no one sees down deep in our soul. 
character is doing right. Why? Because you fear God. You know you're accountable to God and God alone. And so we see the problem of how the wicked are treated. We see the presumption that you can sin without being judged. And you see here the position of the believer, that it is well with those who fear God because they fear before him. In Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 29 to 30, Jesus said this, and it kind of ties in with this, and I just want to read it for you. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive, listen, a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. In other words, it's not going to be easy. You're going to have trials and persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. And he says in verse 31, by the way, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. I don't know about you, but that comforts my heart because there's tremendous pressure on us constantly, all around us, to become something we're not, to please everybody else other than God. And Jesus says, you know what? I just want you to be faithful to what I've called you to do. I just want you to be faithful, to live out your Christian life on a daily basis before those who I bring across your path. Just don't worry about anything else. And see, that's what we need to be reminded of. And when we do that, our position before God is that it will be well with us. Um, Sometimes our judgments are not valid. We don't see things from God's perspective. We look at other people's lives and we say, wow, I wish I could be like them or I wish I could. And God says, you know what? Just be who you are. Be who I created you to be. Understand your position before me. Well, the last thing here is the punishment of the wicked. Verse 13, the punishment of the wicked. It says in verse 13, but it will not be well with the wicked. It won't be. Even though it seems like it's going well now, it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Many times believers get involved in harmful, devastating sin. Why do they do that? Because they forget that God will punish the wicked. That when you sin, there's consequences to your sin. Now we look at our society and it looks like there's no consequences. All these people, politicians, all kinds of people doing wrong things. And it's, it's like nobody's holding them accountable. But no one will escape God's judgment in the end. And the generation we live in doesn't want to hear that, doesn't want to hear the message that, you know what, when you sin, there's going to be a consequence to that sin. Even in churches today, they don't want to talk about sin or death or judgment or hell. Don't talk about those things, Pastor, because if you talk about those things, you're going to chase people away. We want people to come. We want to fill our church up. And they do it with a message that is meant to tickle the ears, not convict the heart or edify the soul. And so you have wicked people getting away with all these things and you ask yourself, why? 
It's, it's, it's hard to understand. But God says it will not be well with them in the end. The Bible says that the days of the wicked are as a shadow. That's, it's just a passing shadow is the idea. It's talking about the insecurity of human life. If nothing else, the last couple months, we've seen the insecurity of human life. We've heard stories of people who, boy, you know, this guy was just doing fine, or this person was just doing fine, and all of a sudden they got the virus, and now they're dead in a matter of days. Our lives are not guaranteed tomorrow. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. Every breath that we take is a gift from God. And what Solomon is saying here is life without purpose in God. It's just like a shadow. It's just something that's here and gone. Uh, Psalm 102 verse 11 says, My days are like a shadow that lengthens, and I wither away like grass. Here today, gone tomorrow. Psalm 109, 23. I am gone like a shadow when it lengthens. I am shaken off like a locust. Or James 4.14 where he says, What is your life? James asked the question, what is your life? For you are a mist, a vapor is the idea that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. A good way to view this is if you get up in the morning, you make yourself a cup of tea and you turn on the teapot and it starts to boil and it produces that steam and it comes out. The steam doesn't make its way up to the ceiling in your kitchen and just kind of hang there like a cloud of steam. It dissipates almost immediately. It vanishes. That's what he says here. One day, there will be a payday for the wicked, and it's not going to be a good one. Psalm 1, verses 4 to 6 says, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff, and the wind drives them away. Yeah, it looks like they're making it right now. Everything's going well with them, but you know what? They're like chaff. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous for the lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will what the way of the wicked beloved will perish will perish so then how can we enjoy what god has given to us today you know don't worry fear god be happy remember our title well how can we do that today with everything going on with all this stuff all these businesses shut down the economy tanked the church is empty. First of all, remember your accountability to God. God's in control, we're not. And then secondly, realize the importance of today. Realize the importance of today. He covers this. This is the second point in verses 14 to 15. There's a couple things here. First of all, you can realize the importance of today by evaluating carefully what happens to both the righteous and the wicked. Look at what he says in verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. What's he saying? It says, he's saying it's like reversed. He said there are righteous people out there, but it seems like they're getting the payday that the wicked deserve. We see that all around us. You see somebody who's just a, a vile person breaking the law at every chance and doing all kinds of things, and they're the guy that wins the lottery, or they're the, the person that, that invests the, the stock in the right thing, and pretty soon they're a billionaire, and it's like, wow, how did this guy get this? And then you see somebody who's working hard, 
a family man. They're working hard. They love the Lord. They're following the Lord. And boy, they just go through hardship after hardship. It seems like it's swapped. Well, we have to understand, Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, Jesus says, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He's saying he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God makes rain fall on everybody. You know, we have droughts out here in California. When we have a drought and it begins to rain again, it doesn't just rain on the Christians' homes. It rains on everybody's lawn. And we need to recognize that, and we need to be okay with that and live with it. God's in control. We're not. But Solomon just says, this doesn't make any sense. It's vanity. And so what does Solomon decide to do with all this injustice around him? He says, first of all, you have to realize the importance of today by evaluating what happens to both the righteous and the wicked. But then secondly, by enjoying the common experiences of each day. This is how you can enjoy each day. Enjoy the common experiences. Look at what he says in verse 15. He says there, and I commend joy. Wow, you're seeing all this injustice, Solomon, and now we're supposed to be joyful? Remember, the joy of the Lord is our what? Is our strength. I commend joy. For the man, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat, drink, and be joyful or be merry. Boy, this is a hard verse for a lot of people. A lot of people, even Christians, they look at this verse and they say, wow, that can't be right. Eat, drink, and be merry? That sounds hedonistic. That sounds like a, something the world would do. Well, it refers to our lives on this earth and living each day to the fullest, extracting enjoyment out of what God has blessed us with. We don't have to have material goods for God's blessings to be evident in our life. Every time we wake up, you take that breath, we get out of bed. Praise the Lord. I'm still breathing. My legs are still working. I can carry on. Praise the Lord for that. You know, this isn't some Epicurean philosophy, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. That's what their philosophy says. In other words, go for the gusto. Get it all in, because when you die, it's all over. It's not saying that. It's saying eat, drink, and be joyful for what, with what God has blessed you with. Enjoy the common experiences of each day. It really has the, the idea there of sitting down and eating a meal, eating a meal and enjoying it. Now I know in our culture today that doesn't happen very much in families. A lot of times everybody's going different directions and you know, hey, the food's in the oven or the food's on the stove, grab what you can, and then off to your next meeting. But mealtime used to be a time where families gathered around a table and actually had some conversation. Now, you might say, well, my family, I grew up, that, that was the worst time of the day because everybody was fighting. Okay, well, that might be the case because sometimes meals are not joyful experiences. But here it's talking about a joyful experience. I mean, I'm thinking of the hymn, This Is My Father's World. And see, when you, when you hear that hymn, This Is My Father's World, and you, you think, wow, our lives should pour out in praise 
to God the Father for some of the most simple things. The simple things. And then thirdly here, by exalting God who makes it all possible. Realize the importance of the day by evaluating what happens to both the wicked and the righteous, by enjoying the common experiences of each day, and by exalting God who makes it all possible. Look at what he says in verse 15. At the end he says, which God gives him under the sun. All these things come from the hand of God. This speaks of exalting God who makes everything possible. All the blessings in your life are from the hand of God. First Chronicles 29, 12 says, both riches and honor came from you and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And in verse 14, just down a couple verses, he says, for all things come from you and of your own we have given you. I mean, even what we give back to God comes from him. So many times we think, you know, when we're giving our offering or our tithes or however you do it to the church, we think, oh, this is our sacrifice. Somehow we convinced ourselves that what we're giving to the church and his work of ministry is ours. (laughs) It's not. He just entrusted it with you. He's given you those resources, whatever they may be. And when you give them back to him, you're you're showing, hey, I'm trusting you. I'm taking what you gave me and I'm giving it back to you, Lord. The trust factor comes in that, you know what, you're gonna continue to bless me as a result. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, and what do you have that you did not receive? Paul asked the Corinthians, I remember studying through this section when we have uh, had the, the sermon series going through 1 Corinthians What do you have that you did not receive? Because they were getting so pious about their gifts and everything else. They they had a completely wrong attitude. It was all about them. And what Paul pointed out to them is, hey, you know what? All these gifts, all this stuff you have, where did you get it? Stop and think about it. Who gifted you with the ability to, to do your job, to make your money, to work hard, to be the family, the father, the mother that you are? Where do you think that came from? Romans 11.36 says, For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. And so we have to be reminded that Ecclesiastes over and over again tells us that concept that we should eat, drink, and find enjoyment in life. He says it in chapter 2, verse 24. He says it in chapter 3, verses 10 and 13. He says it in chapter 5, verses 18 to 19. He says it's, there he says, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil that you do. Uh, So you evaluate what happens to both the righteous and the wicked. You enjoy the common experiences of each day. You exalt the God who made it all possible. And the third point here is that you recognize that it is impossible for you to know the work of God. It is impossible for you to know the work of God. So remember your accountability before God, realize the importance of each day, and then recognize that it is impossible 
for you to know or for you to understand the work of God. Look at what he says in verses 16 to 17. When I applied my heart to know wisdom, this is Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. And what he means is I'm, I'm diligently seeking wisdom with all my heart. This is, this is something, it's not just a casual thought. It's something he's really putting a lot of effort in. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. In other words, I couldn't do it. I tried and I tried and I tried. It just kept me up. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. How much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out, even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. He ends this chapter the way he began it. You're, you're seeking wisdom, you're trying to be wise and all this, but there's some things that are beyond your wisdom. They're beyond your understanding. We need to spend an awful lot a time, we try to spend an awful lot of time trying to understand what's going on around us, what's happening. And sometimes you just have to say, you know what? I don't understand it. God, I'm just gonna trust you. See, when you get to that point, that's when you're gonna have joy. That's when you're gonna have peace. That comes from understanding that you're not gonna understand all that is happening. Sometimes it's impossible for us to know some of these things. Verse 16, he starts off there. He says, it's possible no matter how much time you have. He says, even though one sees no sleep day or night, you could stay up 24-7 trying to figure this thing out. It's not going to work for you because God's ways are beyond our ways. Verse 17, he says, it doesn't matter how much effort you put in. Not only do you not have enough time, you, you don't have enough effort within you to do this. He says, though a man labors to discover it, that has the idea of rolling up your sleeves and working up a sweat. You're really seeking this. You're really trying to understand this. And you can't. There are some things God doesn't allow us to completely understand. In verse 17, he just says it's impossible no, ma no matter how much wisdom you have. It's not a matter of being wise. It's a matter of being human. See, God is God for, uh, for a reason. Though a wise man attempts to know it, it won't happen. So what's the, the message here? We just need to relax. We need to relax a little bit. It shouldn't be frustrating for us here on this earth. We have to go back and re remember that who's in control? God is in control. The God who knows us. The God we put our trust in. And his promise for us is it will be well with your soul if you just fear me. Rest in the Lord. Psalm 37, verses 3 to 7 says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Verse 6 says, He will bring forth your righteousness as a light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourselves over the one who prospers in the way, over the man who carries out evil devices. See, the psalmist says, don't worry about them. Don't make that be your focus. God will work all that out in the end. You just fear the Lord, and it will be well with your soul. Proverbs 
Chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And what? He will make your paths straight. See, there's a lot of anxiety pent up, especially with these present circumstances we're living with. What's going to happen? When are they going to open up the economy? It'll happen when it happens. I get it. A lot of people are struggling. It's a very difficult time in our country. I'm not trying to make light of it. But why expend energy on worrying about things you have no control over? That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about everything. But what? But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And you know what the result of that is? He continues in verse 7 there. He says, and the peace of God, the peace of God, which you're not even going to understand because it surpasses all understanding, Paul says, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Have you ever been in a situation, a trial or a tribulation? And if someone would have told you before you got in the trial or tribulation that this was going to happen to you, you would have freaked out. You would have lost your mind. But now you're in the middle of the tribulation and there's this eerie peace, this calm in your soul because you know God is in control. See, that's the grace of God in your life. God prepares us for times such as those. And it's during those times that we count on his faithfulness. We need to be reminded that we need to be just submissive before God. God has a purpose. God has a plan. We need to rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. If you have never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, now's a good time to do it. I mean, with everything going on around us today, the world's in chaos. And yet, Jesus is still there. He's still on the throne. He's holding out his hands and he's saying, trust me. Put your faith, your trust in me. Turn from your sin and turn to the Savior. Cry out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. Transform my life. I'm tired of carrying this burden of sin around. Help my unbelief. Help me trust in you. When you pray that prayer from a sincere heart, God will answer that prayer. And your life will never ever be the same. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would just minister your grace to our lives. We thank you, Father, that Solomon, one of the wisest men in the world, in all of history, concludes, even though you're very wise, you still can't figure this out. Father, that should make us rest peacefully in your arms knowing that, yes, sometimes life throws us a curveball, and we don't know why things happen the way they do, but you do. Because you're the sovereign God. You're the one who's in control. We're not. And we're called not to be anxious, not to worry about those things, but to realize that you have a plan and a purpose, and you will carry it out. And that we're part of that plan. We're your children. We're your followers. We've committed our lives to Christ. And your promise to us is it will go well with our souls. And so we 
Thank you for that. We pray for our country. We pray that you would continue to bless our leadership, give them wisdom as they deal with opening the economy. And Lord, I pray that there would be a uh, uh, kind of a leveling off and a, uh, even a, this virus would just simply go away. Lord, I know there's a lot of people working night and day to try to figure out a remedy, but Lord, you already know what the remedy is. And Father, at the appropriate time, I, I think that that will be revealed or, or it will simply just dissipate. And Lord, we pray for our churches. We pray that you would continue to bless our fellowship online and, and through the teachings that we're receiving. I pray that you'd build us up in our faith. Help us to um, grow hungry, to desire to come back together to fellowship when we're allowed to do so and when it makes sense to do so. And so, Lord, we just trust you with all these things. And we pray for those who have yet to put their faith in Christ that maybe today would be the day. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.